Well, according to Luke, the fifth chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Once, while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret, and the crowd was pressing on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night long, but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken, and so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. When they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. The Gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. At the end of Horst Damrich's memorial service a few weeks ago, I picked up a copy of his memoir entitled My History, or Mind Sight in German. It's really interesting reading. His growing up during the time of the Nazis, his father's opposition to them based on his experience in World War I, his living through the famine at the end of World War II, his escape from East Germany and aphorisms like, the bullets that you hear are the ones that don't hit you. His opposition to the Christian nationalism in this country that arose from his experiences. But for me, the most striking story is from the end of the war. The American army is approaching a handful of German soldiers have been ordered to defend the small villages of Tierbach and Pausa, where Horst lived. Three soldiers opened fire with a machine gun and hit an American tank. Moments later, Tierbach is shot to rubble. The village church built in the 12th century is destroyed by artillery fire. Tanks are rolling down the hills toward Pausa. This will be the decisive moment in Pastor Albert Bodstubner's life. We all know this gentle man. What should such a man do? Hide with the rest of us in a basement or run into the woods? Instead, he hoists the huge banner of the church, the purple cross on white, and orders the organist to play. The music pours through the open windows. Build on a rock, the church does stand. The pastor takes the cross, the same heavy cross he carries during official processions, and marches alone toward the approaching soldiers. 
A cannon shot booms and whistles across the town. Bodstubner stands in the middle of the road while holding high the cross. All around him on the hill are tanks, their guns trained at the town. An officer comes, talks to the pastor in German, and then orders one battalion to enter the city. These first Americans walk slowly, single line, right and left along the houses, all nicely decorated with white bed sheets hanging from the windows. Every so often, the soldiers enter and briefly inspect a house. My hometown is spared. Horst's parents were religious, so Horst was baptized and confirmed in the church by Pastor Bodstubner. There was nothing special about this man. Horst says that he slept through many boring sermons and was not too sure of the importance of faith and the church growing up. As Germany was crumbling and a few weeks before the, the formal surrender, this event took place. It was a formative event for Horst that altered his attitude about religion and the church. What had seemed unimportant took on new meaning, meaning that grew and developed over the subsequent years, including living through the riots in Detroit in the late 1960s. He believed that the church is crucial to civic life in support of democratic principles. The book came about through his reflection on the past, what he learned from his parents and other figures in his childhood, from his experiences as an adult, and his sense of gratitude for the grace that had been at work at important times. This understanding and gratitude came through ordinary and what seemed sometimes pointless activities. In today's gospel, Jesus recommends to his first disciples something that must have seemed pointless to them. Peter and his companions had been fishing all night and caught nothing. This was fishing with nets, a tiring endeavor. The boat had to be rowed and the nets pulled in repeatedly. They were washing their nets, getting ready to go home when Jesus commandeered Peter's boat for a pulpit. When he finished teaching the crowd, he told Peter to let down the nets for a catch. Why should they do what he said? What did he know about fishing? And they were tired, wanting to go home and sleep. They did it because Jesus said to. Maybe they were too tired to resist. But the result was incredible, so incredible that Peter realized that he was in the presence of someone greater than himself, that the heavens had just opened in this amazing catch, and he was standing in the presence of God. A presence, like Isaiah, that he believed he did not deserve. His everyday, ordinary life was transformed by this encounter with God in Jesus. In this holy moment, Peter, James, and John are called, as Isaiah was, to become bearers of the word of God. Their everyday ordinary lives were transformed. They were the same people, but with a new sense of purpose and connection to God's mission in the world. There's a Latin phrase that's a favorite with Lutheran theologians. My pronunciation is maybe not correct, but it's finitum capax infiniti. It translates as 
The finite can contain the infinite. Lutherans have used this to explain how Christ can be present in the ordinary bread and wine in Holy Communion. But it also explains the presence of God in the encounters in both today's gospel and in the first lesson and in Horst's life. God in Christ can be known in and through seemingly ordinary experiences. Today's first lesson is Isaiah's call to be a prophet and the basis of the Sanctus, Holy, 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 that we sing before communion every Sunday. It doesn't say where Isaiah was when he had this vision of the Lord in the heavenly temple. We know that the year that King Uzziah died was a fearful time in Israel, caught between the powerful empires in Egypt and those in what is modern-day Iraq and Iran. Israel was always pulled in one direction or another. At the time of Uzziah's death, they were being threatened by the Assyrian Empire under Tiglath-Pileser III. Isaiah's fear comes out in his reaction to the vision. Woe is me, he says. But then one of the seraphim cleanses his lips with a live coal. His response to the Lord's call, whom shall I send and who will go for us is, here am I, send me. Isaiah's vision always leads me to recall stories of lives transformed by encounters with the holy, with the infinite contained in the finite, in seemingly ordinary conversations, often as someone is approaching the boundary between life and death. Betty was so efficient that I tried to hire her. She was so efficient, even in her early 80s, that I tried to hire her as our church secretary when the position became vacant. She could organize anything in the time it took me to think about how to do it. Most people were not aware that her husband was declining in Alzheimer's disease because she kept him so well-dressed and engaged in life around them. If he had difficulty finishing a sentence, he would look at Betty and she would finish it. Betty's daughters and granddaughters had learned well from her. They too were gracious and capable of doing whatever needed to be done the kind of people who were just reassuring to have around. Betty's husband was only gone for about a year when it became clear that she had a terminal condition that required more and more frequent blood transfusions. She approached death with the same sense of efficiency. Well, she said, folding her hands in her lap and looking right at me, I guess what's left is for me to die. And then she said, the Lord has always watched over me, and he will now too. The question, what made you so efficient and unafraid, led us into one of those encounters with the presence and grace of God. Her answer, when I was 18, my mother died of cancer. I was the oldest girl, and my mother wanted to prepare me for what was to come. We spent the whole summer before she died together. We took long walks in the park and had long talks. She told me what needed to be done for the family. She showed me how to do it, and she told me that I could do it 
because the Lord would help me as he had always helped her. We even talked about my future and the importance of an education. It was Betty's mother's idea for Betty to go to secretarial school. Something that had a lasting result uh, in a nearby community. Betty was the secretary to the founding superintendent of the Methacton School District. And uh, her boss, her former boss, the founding superintendent said to me, It was just the two of us working out of a garage. I knew what needed to be done, but she's the one who did it. That time spent with her mother was for Betty a holy time because her mother had made it so, connecting her death with trust and hope in Christ. For me, in that conversation, the heavens opened briefly, and we were like Isaiah, standing in the presence of God, in awe of God's work among and through Betty and her mother and of their faith. I went away feeling unworthy to have shared this holy moment. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of God's glory. The pivots on the threshold shook at the voices of those who called and the house filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, but my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Betty's experiences can be seen as ordinary, nothing special, but they were transformed by an awareness of God's grace, of the infinite dwelling in the finite, ordinary life, of receiving more than we deserve, of being drawn to the new life and hope that we have in Christ. God has come among us in Jesus, and God is among us now, leading us, sustaining us, comforting us, and opening our eyes so that we can catch glimpses of the glory of God. Like Peter and his friends, we can be surprised by the transforming presence and activity of God in our ordinary activities. We can find, like Horst, that reflection on our past can bring an awareness of grace and gratitude for what has been given us in the ordinary experiences of life. It's there that we see the Lord in glory and sing today and every Sunday with the seraphim, holy, 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 Lord God of power and might, Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Amen.